0: Hey Creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to episode 19. We are back in action. Uh, pretend I never left I'm excited to get back to this podcast because I absolutely love it and now hopefully things are settled and this will become a regular occurrence again either way thank you for clicking on this episode whether you've listened to all of them or this is your first time hello welcome Uh, this is your 19th reminder to send me your everything send me your hometown murder stories your town's urban legends or your own personal ghost stories tell me everything I want to hear it nothing's off the table as long as it has to do with true crime or spooky stuff Yeah? Okay. Send me those to TGICrimeday at gmail.com. All right, enough about me. Let's talk about today's case. Sherry Rasmussen was described as a brilliant, confident, and beautiful woman. At age 27, she had graduated from UCLA and was already the director of nursing at the Glendale Adventist Medical Center. She was loved by her colleagues and was amazing at her job. When she met John Rutten in the summer of 1984, she fell head over heels, and the feeling was very much mutual. John was charming, tall, and handsome with dark hair and a great sense of humor. He fell in love with Sherry, who was athletic and smart, and they quickly got engaged. Everyone described their relationship as just perfect. They met, and immediately they were all in. They got married on November, uh, sorry, in November of 1985, and their wedding pictures are just the most beautiful most 80s things you've ever seen. They were a gorgeous couple, both very tall and very athletic looking. Sherry was almost six feet tall and just stunning. Everyone said that they were such a beautiful couple and they looked so happy in their wedding pictures. They spent the holiday season visiting family and by all accounts, they seemed very happy and like everything was going great for these newlyweds. They were living in a gated condo community in Van Nuys, California in February of 1985. One morning, February 24th, Sherry was laying in bed while John was getting ready to leave for work. Normally, she was up before him, but every Monday, John would leave before her because she taught a class at the hospital she worked at. On this particular day, she was not really feeling up to teaching her class and was debating calling in for the day and staying home. Me, every single Monday ever. Um, Anyways, John called the house a couple of hours later to see how Sherry was doing or if she decided to go into work. She didn't answer the home phone, so he assumed that she'd gone to work and tried calling her at the hospital. When the receptionist answered, she said that she hadn't seen Sherry that morning. But that wasn't unusual, again, for Mondays because she taught that class, so sometimes she would go straight there and not check in at the hospital. John tried calling her home, tried calling their home a few more times, and she still wasn't answering. Their answering machine hadn't been turned on for the day. In case you're too young to remember answering machines, I'm barely old enough to have remembered this. You used to have to plug in your answering machine. It was, like, separate from the phone so that people could leave messages. It wasn't just, like, built in. Thank goodness for technology, seriously. Anyways, John and Sherry would make sure to plug in the answering machine before they left the house, but Sherry would forget once in a while, so John didn't think much of it and just assumed she'd forgotten to plug it in as she rushed out the door to get to work that morning. Can I just say, I'm so thankful for cell phones. If people don't answer by, like, the third ring, I assume something is wrong because I'm insane. <laughs> and if I had to, like, wait all day, hoping that you would get home and everything was fine, like, I would lose my I would lose my mind. Um, after work... John ran a couple of errands, picked up the dry cleaning, stopped at the UPS store, before getting home around six o'clock. John started to get worried when he pulled into the driveway and saw that their garage door was open, but Sherry's car wasn't there. Very weird. As he walked inside, he also saw that there was broken glass on the ground outside the garage. Again, very weird. The alarm bell started really going off when he realized the door into their condo was open. John walked in. And unfortunately, he found Sherry lying on the floor, still in her pajamas and a bathrobe. She wasn't moving. She was cold to the touch. And John saw that she had been shot in the chest. He called 911, but unfortunately, it was too late. The condo was a mess. It was clear that there had been some kind of a struggle. The sliding glass doors on their bedroom were both shattered. This glass was the one that was all over the driveway. There were things that were knocked off of the walls and smeared of blood, smears of blood all through the condo. One of the most heartbreaking parts of this scene was that there was a bloody handprint near their security system showing that Sherry had tried to press the panic button to call for help. John was, of course, hysterical and called the police immediately. When they examined Sherry, they saw that she had actually been shot three times, once from far away and twice more where the gun had been pressed against her body. Whoever shot her had used a blanket from the house to try to muffle the sound of the gunshot. Sherry had also been brutally attacked on top of that. Her face was swollen and bloody, and she had a bite mark on her arm. They took a swab from that bite mark and also did a cast of it so that they would be able to compare it to suspects later. By 10 p.m., just hours after they found Sherry, the homicide detective assigned to Sherry's case, Lyle Mayer, decided that this was a burglary gone wrong. Barely any investigation was done by that point, and he already made up his mind because it was the LAPD, in the 90s don't get me started also don't yell at me okay there are obviously so many incredible officers and detectives involved with the LAPD but over the years there have been major issues major issues in the LAPD and if you are familiar with true crime you probably are nodding your head because we hear about it a lot unfortunately police corruption is a thing we don't want to admit that but it's true more on that later, I promise it's relevant. Anyway, so after doing some very, very quick investigating, we're talking a couple of hours. The police decided that this was just a break-up break-in gone wrong, and that it wasn't anyone close to Sherry or John. They asked John if either of them had any issues with anyone at work, or an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, and John was like, absolutely not, everything is peachy. Well, <laughs> John wasn't exactly lying when he said this, but he was definitely leaving out some important information. Sherry's dad, Nels, told the police that there had absolutely been someone sniffing around the couple. He didn't know this person's name, but Sherry had opened up to him about John's ex-girlfriend, who happened to be an LAPD police officer. So, Nels asked the head detective, Lyle Mayer, if they were going to look into that as a possibility, to which this asshole replied that Nels watched too many cop shows. The LAPD, everybody. Detective Mayer insisted that this was a break-in, and that Sherry had surprised the robbers, and that's how she'd ended up dead. Even though this happened in a gated community, and nothing had been stolen, oh, except their marriage license. You know how criminals always steal those. And she had been brutally beaten, and clearly chased all over the house trying to get away from this person or people. Apparently, there had been some robberies in the area, and in one case, a woman had been assaulted, so Detective Mayor decided that this made the most sense and then refused to listen to any other options. Again, he told Nels, Sherry's father, that when he asked about this ex-girlfriend person that he watched too many cop shows and needed to mind his business. Very professional. Apparently, his other guess had been that John killed Sherry. Because as we know, most of the time, it is the husband. But after talking to John extensively, it was clear that he had nothing to do with hurting Sherry. And I will say this right now, okay? John makes some weird decisions and maybe isn't the brightest bulb. You'll see. But he did love Sherry so much, and I'm just going to clear this up right now, not the murderer. The problem was that Detective Mayer refused to believe anything outside the possibility that it was either John or a robbery gone wrong. Those were the only two options in his mind. So... When Nels was pissed and insisted that they should take a look at the LAPD officer ex-girlfriend, he was brushed off as this crazy grieving father. They basically asked John if he thought that was possible. John said no, and they were like, cool, John says no, so Nels is wrong, rather than taking this guy's word for it. Like, maybe just a quick look-a-roo would be appropriate, in my opinion. Let's talk for a second about the relationship between Sherry's dad, Nels, and John. Nels was not the biggest fan of John. He didn't hate him, for sure. I read in a couple of sources that he just felt like John was a nice enough guy, but he felt like he was, quote, unimpressive. Nels thought so highly of Sherry and felt like she just was wonderful, and John was not on her level. Which is not abnormal for parents to feel like their kid is amazing and that no one will ever be good enough, but Nels was aware of this situation with John's relationship with his ex-girlfriend Stephanie, So he was extremely upset with John after Sherry's death. John wasn't even the one to tell Sherry's parents about her death, which again, I don't want to jump to like judgment too quickly. I can't even imagine what that conversation would look like or how you would even approach it. Uh, But Nels actually called John at his parents' house the day after they found out about Sherry and demanded to speak to him. But John's father stepped in and wouldn't let him talk to Nels. And, I totally see both sides of this situation as valid. Both are equally as horrible. Both sides of this family are trying to do what's best for their kids. It's your base level, like, lizard brain instinct to protect your child. And honestly, John was probably so devastated and upset over Sherry's murder, I don't blame him for completely shutting down and not being able to have that conversation with Nels. That's something no one should ever have to do. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the two families worked together moving forward to try to find justice for Sherry, and it became a fight that Nels had to go at alone. Based on John's previous decisions, again, just my opinion, he's clearly someone who doesn't always handle confrontations very well. We'll get into it. Again, no hate towards him because you never know how you're going to act in these horrible life-altering situations. And I think that there are times that people get judged a little too harshly. John does get a lot of hate in this case. And uh, you'll see, it's not hard to see why, but I truly don't think he had anything to do with Sherry's murder. I just want to get that out of the way right now. Okay, Let's, let's move on. Did he make great decisions? No, but that does not make someone a murderer. Anyways, okay, moving on. So let's talk about this LAPD officer ex-girlfriend because Nels had many reasons to be suspicious about her. Stephanie Lazarus met John when they were both attending UCLA years earlier. John and Stephanie had the the same friend group. They were both very athletic, so they hung around the same circles. Apparently, while they were in college, they never really had a relationship beyond friendship. But I read in multiple places that Stephanie would do things like steal John's clothes and take pictures of him while he was asleep naked like a creep. Anyways, it seems like she always had a crush on him and maybe he wasn't super interested in her but he was always around. So eventually something did happen between them and they had sex. And yikes of bikes you guys. <laughs> this is why you always have to define the relationship because according to Stephanie, they dated and were very serious. And according to John, they were just friends with benefits, and as far as he knew, they were on the same page. Again, these are the conversations we have to have. You have to define the relationship. Everyone must be on the same page. Stephanie became pretty close with John's family, especially his mom, red flag. Uh, For John's 25th birthday, Stephanie threw him a surprise party because she had no idea that they were not in a relationship, and at this point, he was actually in a very serious relationship with Sherry obviously John and Sherry got engaged and here is something that makes me think Stephanie was like a little off if John and Sherry had been dating for like a year where did he, where did she think he was all the time like were they still hooking up on and off or did he see her once in a while and it's like she was shocked and like wait I thought we were serious she just said that she was sad he was marrying someone else the way you would be if an ex who still had feelings for her was getting married but somehow in Stephanie's mind she thought she had the chance to get like quote, back with him. And I say air quotes because you can't really get someone back who wasn't yours to begin with. Also, John, my guy, why is there a girl who thinks she's your girlfriend while you're dating someone serious enough to get engaged? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. (laughs) At this point, John's being a bit shady, in my opinion, if this girl he sometimes has sex with has no idea he's in a serious relationship. And here's my unsolicited advice for the episode. You can be dating 20 people. That's fine. But once you have an actual specific partner, girlfriend, boyfriend, defined relationship, that shouldn't be confusing for anyone that may have been dating you before or whatever. Anyway, not the point of the story. I'll keep my business to myself. We move forward. So John got engaged to Sherry. They're bananas in love with each other. Meanwhile, Stephanie has been hired on by the LAPD and is doing her thing. She actually wrote a letter to John's mom. Again, weird. She said, quote, I'm truly in love with John, and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did, and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision, end quote. For whatever reason, either because he was actually completely clueless or because he just liked the attention, John didn't completely cut off his relationship with Stephanie. Don't come for me. People in relationships can have fine or can have friends, that's fine. But if this friend is someone you used to have sex with regularly and is clearly still in love with you, that's where we need to set up this magical thing called boundaries. After John and Sherry got engaged, Stephanie wrote in her journal about how depressed she was, and that she didn't feel like getting out of bed because she was so upset over John. And listen, if a man makes you feel this way, you run. Okay, seriously, Stephanie should have just ran in the opposite direction because she ended up making some very poor choices. More on that in a second. So, like I said, there was still that communication between John and Stephanie, which I would honestly love to know what that looked like. Because one day before John and Sherry got married, John went to visit Stephanie so that they could talk and so that Stephanie could have, quote, closure which, personally, I have never understood, because clearly there was a lot going on in this situation in Stephanie's mind, and I can't imagine there would have been anything John could have said to her that would have actually given her closure, but whatever. Just my opinion. So John, being an immature 25-year-old who was clearly thinking with his downstairs brain, decided that a great way for him to give Stephanie closure was to have sex with her one last time before he got married to Sherry, who had no idea about Stephanie. Um, so when my favorite murder covered this case, Georgia said something perfect along the lines of, if it ends with you having an orgasm, you're not giving someone a gift. Seriously, like I said, John seems like a good person, but he just makes the weirdest choices. Um, shockingly, that little sexy, sexy closure session didn't magically fix, fix the situation. Can you believe it? A while later, while John and Sherry were still engaged, Stephanie showed up at their condo and just asked John to wax her skis. And Sherry was like, um, hi, who are you? As far as I know, it was as shocking to John as it was to Sherry that Stephanie showed up at the condo that she'd never been to. Apparently she was like in this cute little workout outfit showing off her body and being super flirty with John. And Stephanie was like, dude, You can't be serious. Like, tell her that you are not going to do that. That's so weird. She just showed up at our house. Like, how did she even know where we lived? And John, oh, John, 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 was like, babe, you have nothing to worry about. She's just my friend. And if I do this for her, she'll go away and leave us alone. Surprisingly, that didn't happen. She showed up a few days later to pick up the skis. And John, of course, was like, "Oh, hey, buddy, here you go. And Sherry had to be the one to say something along the lines of, yeah, please don't come back here. Shocking to no one, she didn't leave them alone. A few weeks later, Stephanie showed up at the condo while John was at work and Sherry was home. Stephanie was in her work uniform with her gun on her hip and just showed up at their condo because she was on a break. (laughs) Sherry told her dad that this happened and she was horrified and worried that this was going to be a regular occurrence. Maybe she just always showed up there. Maybe that's why she knew where they lived. Um, This was just a few weeks before their wedding And she wanted to believe John's insistence that there was nothing going on, but according to Nels, she was very upset and in tears, which didn't happen often. Sherry was strong and confident and not one to get shaken up over things. She also told Nels about how frustrated she was and that she wished that John would just get it together and tell Stephanie to get lost, but he was like, I don't want to be rude. Seriously, dude? John's plan was just to ignore her until she went away. Not one for communication, that John. Shockingly, again... This did not work. Stephanie showed up at Sherry's job one day. And when the receptionist told her Sherry was busy, uh, she waited in the hallway until she could talk to her, which was like a while. Stephanie waited. And then she eventually got so mad that she was waiting that she burst into Sherry's office. Stephanie showed up at Sherry's work ready to yell and confront her out of nowhere. Sherry and witnesses said that Stephanie was dressed in little like shorty shorts and a tube top trying to show off how cool and hot she was. I roll my eyes every time I think about this part. Ridiculous. But Stephanie also unloaded on Sherry and told her everything that happened between her and John, including their meetup for this closure sex, which, again, still can't believe that didn't work. It seems so logical. This conversation ended with a classic, if I can't have him, no one can, and Stephanie stormed out of the office. I feel so bad for Sherry that she had to hear all of that from Stephanie in the loudest, most upsetting, most public conversation ever, um, I read in a couple of sources that security basically had to come and tell her to leave. So Sherry ended up calling and telling her dad everything, which yay for Nels. He sounds like the best dad ever. Also, he was like, John is a dweeb. He's not good enough for you. Paraphrasing. But that's basically how he felt about John, especially after hearing all about, about this BS with his ex-girlfriend slash friends with benefits. Eventually, Sherry did calm down and she confronted John who apologized and I hope Grovelled and begged for forgiveness at Sherry's freaking feet, Sherry decided to give John, and like I said, I think John is truly a good guy. I think he just makes bad decisions. Um, So she decided to forgive him, and they decided that their love was much more important than whatever happened between him and Stephanie. Clearly, at this point, it was 100% one-sided, and Stephanie had just taken off and run wild with the dramatics. Later, when Nels told the LAPD about this interaction between Sherry and Stephanie... They asked John about it, and according to him, Sherry was upset, but didn't seem like she was scared for her safety or worried beyond the frustration he saw. Which, again, he was either completely clueless or, and again, this is my opinion of what makes the most sense, Sherry was probably doing her best to forget Stephanie and all of her insanity and just work on this relationship with the man that she loved. So she probably was trying to be calm after she kind of unloaded on her dad about how upset she really was. And she probably was trying to be understanding and not let Stephanie get in the way of this, clearly. Otherwise, they would have just not gotten married. So, if Stephanie were a normal freaking person, she would have just moved on, taken the hint. Also, again, more unsolicited advice. Don't ever fight over a man. Seriously, don't. Stephanie was all up in arms doing the psycho ex thing, and for what? A guy who could never be straightforward with her, who left her brokenhearted and led her on for years, and the person she's mad at is Sherry? No, you guys, don't be like Stephanie. Don't fight another woman over a turd, okay? John and Terry got married, and were in a really good place by all accounts. I hope they worked through their problems, and that they were happy and in love and enjoying being newlyweds, um, and that is until Stephanie went absolutely berserk. A few months after they got married, Sherry told Nels that she felt like Stephanie was basically stalking her, and I assume she felt completely helpless because who was she supposed to call? The cops, who were Stephanie's friends? I can't even... Imagine how scary and upsetting that had to have been for Sherry and her parents. We, of course, know by now that Stephanie very clearly murdered Sherry, but no one was going to do anything about it. For months and even years, Nels and his wife Loretta called the LAPD asking if they'd questioned Stephanie, if there were any updates, and eventually one of the detectives basically told them to drop it and stop calling because that person was trash. Over the next few years, there were major updates in DNA testing, and Nels basically begged the LAPD to test the samples taken from the crime scene, and they refused. There were blood, hair, and saliva samples taken from the scene. They had plenty that they could have done testing on, but the LAPD told Nels it wasn't in their budget to do the testing. And Nels was like, That's fine. I have a lab that's willing to do it. I will pay for it out of my own pocket. To which the LAPD replied that it was pointless to do the testing without a suspect in mind to match to it. And Nels was like, Yeah. But there is a suspect, to which, again, the LAPD replied by purposefully losing the DNA. <laughs> Oops, right? A detective named Phil Morritt visited the county coroner's office on October 11th, 1993, which was seven years after Sherry's murder, but not long after Nell's called asking about the DNA. Um, so this man went and checked out the samples, just randomly, for no reason. It's completely normal for an investigator to remove samples for testing, obviously, but usually there's a record of what samples were taken, when they were taken, and why they were taken, etc. But there was no information beyond the fact that he checked out these samples, and then they just are never mentioned again. There was also no record of the samples being checked into the LAPD office, which, again, was normally done. So they left the samples office and never turned up at the LAPD office— And then when later asked what the hell happened to the samples, Phil Moritz said he had no recollection of taking the samples. Okay, thanks Phil, sounds great. So, at that point, things really hit a wall. No one was listening to Nels, the evidence was gone, and things went quiet for over a decade. After brutally murdering Sherry, Stephanie managed to work her way up the ladder of the LAPD. She was actually very well-liked and a successful officer. She married another officer in the LAPD, and I believe they had one child together. But, hold on, (laughs) before she met Mr. Wright, she, of course, continued to pursue John, because that was the whole point of murdering his wife, right? She did the whole song and dance of being his shoulder to cry on, etc., and as far as we can tell, John didn't seem to find any kind of reason to be suspicious of Stephanie. However, he did make a call to detectives just to do a little quick checkeroonie just to be sure that stephanie wasn't a murderous monster before going on vacation with her yes you heard that correctly three years after sherry's murder in 1989 stephanie and john went on a scuba vacation in hawaii together this was when he was like i should go on vacation with my friend and he called the lapd and was like just to double check you're sure she didn't murder my wife I think if you have to ask that question at all, it's probably, you shouldn't go, but that's none of my business. Um, Obviously, Stephanie and John didn't end up together, so do you think there was any point where she was like, huh, turns out this guy isn't what I thought he was, and I literally committed murder for what? Like, and what did she do with their marriage certificate? Burn it? Shred it? Like, as if stealing their marriage certificate would erase this from her life? It's just so weird to me. So eventually... Things quieted down with Sherry's case, and it went cold for a few years until 2001. Actually, not a few years, a lot of years. In 2001, the L.A. police chief, Bernard C. Parks, created the cold case unit and started going back over all of the open cold cases. Eventually, a criminalist named Jennifer Francis found Sherry's case and was shocked that it was still an open case. Jennifer saw Sherry's file and... She saw in her file that there were multiple DNA samples taken from the scene, including the saliva sample, from the bite mark on Sherry's arm. She also saw the record of the samples being removed from storage and then disappearing into thin air. However, the swab that was taken from Sherry's arm was not listed in the evidence Phil it checked out years earlier. So Jennifer, who's a badass, saw the red flags and knew that something was off. She knew the chain of evidence protocol, the evidence in open cases was normally stored in the freezer at the coroner's office until the case was closed, and then it was moved into the evidence file. The swab wasn't in the evidence file, so she went back to the coroner's office and they couldn't find them like through their computer system, so they searched the freezers by hand, going through everything in them. There was a manila envelope shoved in the very back of the freezer that had been damaged from the frost on the freezer wall, so the case number was missing, but a small Rasmussen was still written on the envelope. Phil Morritt somehow missed that sample when he took everything else, and the saliva swab was still safely stored in its plastic container in the freezer after 18 freaking years. Jennifer had the saliva sample tested, and they checked it against the database, and there were no matches. Jennifer was surprised to learn that the sample belonged to a female because, as we know, the original investigators insisted that it had been two male burglars. Jennifer dug through Sherry's whole case file, trying to find out if there were any female suspects mentioned. But, again, shockingly, maybe not so shockingly, um, there was no mention of Stephanie. The original detectives took it upon themselves to omit any mention of her. Not bothering to mention all the times that Nels Rasmussen had asked about her. They didn't include any voice-recorded interviews where Nels or John talked about her at all, and they didn't interview her once. There was a mention of a woman who Sherry had had a confrontation with at work, but it was another woman who worked at the hospital. I don't think she was mentioned by name. It was just a quick note about someone who had harassed Sherry at work in the past. Jennifer went to the detective who was supervising her, uh, Cliff Shepard, and was like, hey, this was female DNA. What's up with this woman harassing her at work? And allegedly, Detective Shepard very quickly was like, Oh, the LAPD officer? No, she's cleared. Move on. She's like, uh, meanwhile, she was like, I didn't mention an LAPD officer. Like, what are you talking about? There's no officer in this file. So Shepard thought that he was smoothing things over when actually he opened a new can of worms. Jennifer asked him to elaborate, and allegedly, he was like, Oh, don't worry about it. She was a former girlfriend. She's not part of this. After this conversation with Shepard, Jennifer was basically forced to drop her suspicions and stop talking about it for fear of retaliation because she was going against what the police chief was saying. She kept quiet for a while, but eventually she told someone about her suspicions that there was a cover-up happening, and in response to that, they made her go through a mental evaluation on what was described as a bogus claim that she slept with a gun and basically that she was paranoid and was labeled as a problematic witness and wasn't allowed to testify in a huge case that she had been working on because she was nosing around where they didn't want her to be, in my opinion, allegedly. She was basically backed into a corner and had no choice but to drop the accusations, and after seeing what Jennifer went through, no one else would touch it or bring up anything about the case. Luckily, the universe was on the side of good in this case, and in 2009... It was re-examined by another fresh set of eyes. Two detectives from Van Nuys, Jim Nuttall and Pete Barba, were going through old case files when they started reading Sherry's file. They had the same reactions that Jennifer did. Something didn't sit right with them in this case, and the idea that it was a burglary gone wrong made no sense to them. First of all, the female DNA was a huge red flag, and then they started looking at the crime scene forensics, and more and more red flags started popping up, first of all. There was a stack of stereo equipment and a VCR player that was sitting at the top of the stairs, supposedly in the fight between Sherry and her attacker, started upstairs, and then continued all over the house. If there had been this massive struggle, it's doubtful that this stack of electronics wouldn't have been knocked over and thrown down the stairs. There was also a bloody fingerprint found on one of the items in this stack, suggesting the attacker killed Sherry and then put the electronics there. Also, this fingerprint was smooth, which means the attacker was smart enough to wear gloves so there wouldn't be fingerprints. On top of the fact that all the electronics looked like they were stacked to look like someone was caught in the middle of a break-in, there was a small jewelry box on top of a dresser in the master bedroom that wasn't touched. Nothing was taken from the house, again, besides that marriage certificate, which, again, I just can't get over how stupid and petty that little detail is. So, Detective Nuttall and Detective Barba were like, okay, obviously, this wasn't a break-in and they started the investigation all the way from the beginning. They actually listened and paid attention to what people were saying and formed a list of five female suspects. I'm assuming they knew what happened when Jennifer Francis tried to bring attention to this case, so they didn't discuss it with other detectives and only referred to these suspects by numbers one through five. By this point, Stephanie had been promoted to a high-up position in the art theft department as part of the commercial crimes division. Stephanie was a decorated officer who everyone really liked, and Nuttall and Barbara didn't want to cause any issues for her just in case she was innocent, so they kept things very hush. After clearing the other four suspects, they focused in on Stephanie. They questioned John, who still, after all this time, was like, we weren't in a relationship, we were just having sex, and the detectives were like, okay, that wasn't enough to convince them that Stephanie was innocent, which is good, because it's pretty obvious. Um, they knew that they needed to get a DNA sample but they didn't want to alert her at all so they had to get her dna secretly in a really great article written by edward anderson on medium.com this was summed up perfectly with the exact right amount of sass so it said quote they were able to get a sample of lazarus's dna by grabbing a cup and straw she used after getting lunch at costco with her daughter maybe murderers should stop eating in public with their daughters if they don't want to get caught once they compared the dna samples they found a match it was more likely, more than likely, that Lazarus had killed Sherry, yet her co-workers still did not want to believe it. Maybe it was all a misunderstanding, and she hadn't meant to kill her rival. Who among us hasn't gone to someone's house and accidentally killed them? End quote. Listen, Edward Anderson, coming in with a sass. Seriously, I know people get really weird about the use of trash to get people's DNA, but it's like, sorry, don't be a murderer. Anyway, moving on. They also looked further into the case against Stephanie, and there was more evidence than just the DNA. First of all, they looked into Stephanie's work records to see if she was on duty the day that Sherry was killed. She was off duty that day. They also looked into the weapon used to commit the murder. The bullets found at the scene were were 38 caliber bullets. Most officers at that time used 38s as their off-duty weapons. Obviously, Stephanie would have been smart enough, if you can call it smart. Stephanie would have known better, I should say, than to use her own on-duty gun. So they looked into this, and during the time of the murder... Stephanie did own a Smith & Wesson Model 49 38 caliber gun. But, what a weird coincidence. Thirteen days after Sherry's murder, Stephanie reported the gun as missing. But not to her own police department where she worked, which is what they would normally do in this situation. She instead reported it to the Santa Monica Police Department. The Santa Monica PD was apparently close to a popular peer, so it was theorized that she threw the gun into the Pacific Ocean, never to be seen again, and then went to the office and said, Someone stole my gun. I don't know what happened. With all of the evidence stacked up, it was finally time for suspect number five to be confronted about her involvement in this case. Again, not wanting to cause an issue at the police department or give her any time to come up with a story, they discreetly asked her for help in an art theft case they were working on. On June 5th, 2009, Stephanie, who was now 51 years old, was invited into an interrogation room by two detectives, Dan Jaramillo and Greg Stern. These two detectives didn't have any professional connections to Stephanie, which is why they were chosen to interrogate her. They asked her to sit down at the table, but on the side where normally the suspect sits. She seemed confused at first, but she sat down. I wonder how long it actually took for her to realize what was happening, or did she just genuinely think she would never get caught? Like, she had gotten away with it for over 20 years at this point, so maybe she really just didn't think anything of it and was like, cool, art theft, I love it. (laughs) So anyways, they kept it really calm, and they told Stephanie they just wanted to talk in private about some loose ends they were tying up in Sherry Rasmussen's case, and they didn't want there to be any office gossip. Stephanie seriously sat there in front of these detectives and tried to be like, the Sherry Who case? What's this? One of the detectives basically asked her, yeah, you know, John Rutan's wife? He purposely pronounced his last name wrong, and Stephanie quickly said, oh, you mean Rutten? And then very quickly again, tried to backtrack and act like they were just friends from college and she didn't know him that well or that she hadn't even thought much about him over the years, which is ridiculous. The detectives pressed her a little more and asked her if they had ever been close. Eventually, she said yes, and they asked if she had ever met his wife, and this woman honestly said, quote, oh, I might have. I don't really remember. They pushed her again a little more, asking if she'd ever had any issues with her. And then finally, this kind, patient act that she'd been putting on eventually broke and she started to show some annoyance. They had basically backed her into a corner, having her come down to this interrogation room, and she was getting frustrated that they were asking her all these questions. Like I mentioned before, Stephanie was a very experienced, a very experienced officer. She knew the drill. And she was probably trying to play it cool until she could reasonably leave that room and figure out a new plan. Speculation, allegedly, just my opinion. I think she was just trying to stay calm so she could get out of there and then come up with more lies. Because that's what she'd been doing for decades. So they asked Stephanie if she knew Sherry, or where she worked, or if they talked. And she said that she didn't remember, or remember when they even got married because it was, quote, a million years ago, end quote. Then she went on to say, quote... I couldn't even tell you the last time I talked to him. It was kind of a weird relationship. We dated. I can't say that he was my boyfriend. I don't know if he would have considered me his girlfriend we just dated. Oh, according to so many things we know, that's not true. Um, it's ridiculous because she was clearly hung up on him and according to her own personal journals where she talked about how miserable and depressed she was that he was getting married and that letter that he wrote or that she wrote to his mom saying she wished that things could have gone differently between them. So it's it's pretty obvious that that was not the case. When they asked Stephanie if she knew what happened to John's wife, she was like, oh, um, yeah, I think she was murdered. And then they asked her, oh, how did you find out about that if you haven't heard of them or anything about them? And apparently, according to her, she was like, oh, I saw a poster at the police station about it. Then she, so this is her quote. Um, geez, let me think back. Um, geez, she said, quote, I don't know if it was a burglary or something. It's been so many years. I can faintly think that I may have seen a flyer. It may have had her picture on it. That's what I see. If somebody called me, I may or I may not have known what her last name was. I may have. Maybe if you told me, I would remember it. It was very obvious at this point to the det- detectives... Why can I not say the word detective? Have you noticed this entire episode? It's like as if I've never said detective out loud before. That was a good one. <laughs> it was very obvious at this point to the detectives that Stephanie knew exactly who Sherry was. They asked her, are you sure you don't remember? Are you sure you never had a conversation with her, like at the hospital or something? They had to do this little dance back and forth because they were trying to get info from her, but they didn't want her to get pissed and then just refused to speak. So to quote Stephanie's answer, and please bear with me, this woman talks in circles, it's very hard to read her quotes. So Stephanie said, quote, I'm thinking that because he would date other people, and I would date other people, and I think at one point he may have been dating her, I don't know. Maybe he was married, I don't even remember. And I'm like, why are you calling me if you're dating her, or living with her, or married to her? I'm honestly, I don't think I remember the time frame. I'm like, come on, knock it off. Now I'm thinking, I may have gone to her and said, hey, you know what, if he's dating you he's bothering me. I'm thinking we had a conversation about that. One or two, maybe. It could have been three. I don't want to say I had three conversations with her or whatever. (laughs) End quote. Talking in circles because she's nervous, in my opinion. I honestly can't imagine being these detectives and being fairly certain that Stephanie was Sherry's killer to have her sit there with this straight face while she makes up all these stupid stories as if John were the one who kept bugging her and not the other way around, as if she didn't show up and yell at Sherry and make a scene in front of multiple people. Eventually, Stephanie straight up asks the detectives, why are you asking me about this? What do I have to do with this? And they say, oh, you know, just retracing the original investigation. And then they asked her if anyone else had talked to her the first time around, and she lied and she said no, but then she caught herself and said, oh, actually, yeah, they did now that I'm thinking about it. So in this conversation, she very quickly went from who, John, whom, who's John, to, oh, his wife, that's right, weird, but I never met her, oh, okay, actually, yes, I did meet her, maybe three times, but that's just, maybe I don't know, it's just so weird to me, I'm like, dude, you knew her, it's so obvious, and then you know that you were interviewed about this murder, (sighs) it's so frustrating, okay, but that's how pathological liars work, right, she's gotten away with it for this long by just lying and lying and telling all of these stories, so of course she thinks that's going to continue working, Oi. Tangent done. Let's move on. So we all know that's when the alleged cover-ups and the alleged eliminating details and the alleged destroying of evidence happened. They allegedly did a lot of work to cover her ass, and now it was all surfacing because luckily the second, well, third time that this case was looked into, the detective work was done beautifully, and they didn't care who Stephanie was to the LAPD. They just wanted to get justice for Sherry, which we love to see. So the interrogation is happening. Stephanie is starting to get frustrated with these amazing, badass detectives. Detective Jaramillo asked Stephanie if she'd ever been to John and Sherry's house, and she said no, but then was like, well, maybe for like a party or something. Sickening. Again, she tried to be like, I don't think I even knew where they lived, which we know isn't true because she showed up unannounced many, many times. The dance continues. He asked her if she had an issue with Sherry, To which Stephanie responded with the utmost disgust and pretend shock and said, what? No. She said, quote, but I mean, if he were dating me and dating her, I probably said, hey, pick or something. I can't say that we ever screamed or yelled. I mean, he was a pretty mellow guy, you know. I think I was pretty mellow. I don't think we had some big, huge blow up. To which the detective replied, quote, I mean, you would remember if she snapped on you like, hey, that's my man, you know, leave him alone, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. You would remember an instant like that. End quote. Stephanie replied, quote, Well, you know, maybe that happened. She said, Gosh, it's been so long. I mean, that's not ringing a bell. I'm crazy, she said, giggling nervously. People think I'm really hyper and I can get upset, you know. I mean, I forget five seconds later. End quote. Which makes me uncomfortable. There's actually um, a little mention in a few articles that I read where people had mostly nice things to say about Stephanie. Um, They said she was a great worker, she was a good cop, etc., But then multiple people did say, like, well, she did kind of have a temper and would fly off the handle sometimes, which earned her the nickname Stephanie Spazaris, which is the most playground, immature insult, and I love it. Anyway, the dance continues yet again. She's forcing herself to stay calm and not get upset over this. She's doing her very best acting, but they are still going back and forth, bringing things up and getting her to change from, no, I never said that, to, okay, yeah, we may have had a conversation. Like... Eventually, Detective Stearns brings up the fact that there were fingerprints and saliva taken from the scene, which Stephanie probably thought had been destroyed along with everything else. They were like, so listen, some of the evidence went missing, super weird, but we did find the saliva, and when Stephanie finally breaks and says that she wants to know if she's a suspect, if she's being accused, because she doesn't want them to pin something on her, and then she just gets really defensive... And they're like, okay, look, we're just checking our boxes. You aren't under arrest. You're allowed to leave whenever you want, but we would like you to give us a live sample um, and do a DNA test to 100% eliminate you. And then finally, Stephanie's like, okay, okay, I need a lawyer. This is ridiculous. I can't believe you're accusing me. Drama, drama, drama. She says that she wants to leave and talk to a lawyer before moving forward and giving her DNA. And the detectives are like, no problem. Feel free to go. She walks out of the interrogation room and, surprised, she's under arrest because they already have the mother-flippin' saliva sample. They just wanted to see how she would react to being asked for it. Stephanie was read her Miranda rights and put into handcuffs, all the while yelling about how ridiculous and how crazy and insane they were being, etc., etc., etc. In March of 2012, 26 years after Sherry's tragic murder, Stephanie Lazarus went to trial. The trial lasted three weeks, and the jury was shown all of the evidence. Stephanie's defense lawyer tried to make the argument that there wasn't enough evidence to convict her, to which we all roll our eyes. The main evidence was that the bullets used to murder Sherry were a match to the bullets that Stephanie used in her off-duty gun, remember, the one that mysteriously went missing and wasn't properly reported, and, of course, the DNA from the bite mark. The defense lawyer tried to say that the DNA was so old and probably wasn't packaged correctly, and that there could have been evidence tampering, which... We know there was evidence tampering, but not in the way that made Stephanie look guilty. Whether or not it was on purpose, most of the evidence from this case mysteriously went missing. It was sheer luck that the DNA sample was still around. So, that was kind of a lame argument, in my opinion. The prosecuting attorney told the jury that it was more than just DNA evidence, saying, quote, It was a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart, end quote, which is the most perfectly dramatic thing I've ever heard, and it should be the name of the Lifetime movie about this case just saying. During the trial, John testified that they had had a sexual relationship for about a year, but had never intended on having a serious relationship with Stephanie, and that she had, quote, enticed him into having sex with her while he was engaged to Sherry. Enticed. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, Stephanie's lawyer tried to insist that it couldn't have been Stephanie because after the murder, she didn't try to pursue John again, which I think is incorrect because they went on that vacation together. It does make me wonder, though, if she was like, I murdered this guy's wife out of jealousy. If I try to pursue him now, it'll be so obvious that I'll get caught. Just speculation. I just really want to know what the hell was going on through her mind. Like, was it worth it, you garbage person? At the trial, John and Stephanie didn't even look at each other. And honestly, I just can't help but feel really bad for John. That had to have been awful to come to terms with, and I would imagine there was a lot of grief and guilt on his end knowing that he had been wrong about Stephanie. The jury deliberated for two days, and thankfully, justice was served. Stephanie was convicted to 27 years to life and will be eligible for parole in 2039. She, of course, delusionally maintains that her innocence is what's correct, and she has asked for multiple appeals, all of which have been denied. In 2010, Sherry's family filed a lawsuit against the LAPD for the mishandling of this investigation, but unfortunately, this lawsuit was dropped because the statute of limitations is up, which is so frustrating. But the main thing is that the correct person was convicted of Sherry's murder and her family can finally start healing from this horrible tragedy. Losing your daughter, especially in this way, is bad enough, but to watch decades pass with no conviction when there's such an obvious answer is something that no one should ever have to go through, and I hope that they have some semblance of peace knowing that they had been correct all along and that finally this person is behind bars. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, anyways, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, I swear to you, I'm in the process of making this podcast much more regular. Uh, but for now, I appreciate those of you who listen to the sporadic postings. Uh, make sure that if you liked this episode, you subscribe so you have access to the newest episodes. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.